Welcome to the ASSP Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast, your source for expert insights on industry consensus standards and ASSP technical publications. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. You see it on almost every construction project. Scaffolding is a major component in the construction industry as a means to assist workers at height in doing their jobs safely. Many factors go into the safe construction, use, and dismantling of scaffolding, and the ANSI ASSP A108 standard can serve as a guide to do exactly that. Joining me today to talk about A108 is Dale Lindemer. Dale is Chief Engineer at Brand Safeway and is also the Chair of the ANSI ASSP A108 Subcommittee. Dale, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about scaffolds and the A10H standard. Okay, great. Uh, glad to have you. Uh, let's get started. Now, as I mentioned at the top, scaffolding is something that can be found on pretty much every construction site, and they come in many forms. So I thought we could start our conversation there and discuss the different types of scaffolding that contractors and safety professionals may come across and the different types of projects where the various types of scaffolding might be used. Well, there are over 20 types of uh, different types of scaffolds covered in the A10A standard, uh, but they will all fit into one of two general categories. Uh, first, we have suspended scaffolds. I'm sorry, supported scaffolds, which are uh, built up from below, uh, supported from either the ground or, or another structure. The other is suspended scaffolds, which, as the name implies, are, are hanging from above. Uh, they're attached to an overhead anchorage of some type by a non-rigid means, such as a wire rope. Okay. Uh, on the uh, supported type, uh, the most common you'll see is probably the fabricated tubular frame scaffold, uh, sometimes called frame embrace, but usually just called frame scaffold. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is seen on many construction sites. It's used by various trades, masons, carpenters, glazers, electricians, drywallers, painters, pretty much everybody. Okay. Uh, Frame scaffold has the advantage of providing multiple platform levels if needed. Uh, another popular type you see in construction is called the pump jack, which is basically a four by four pole, either either a wood pole or aluminum, with a with a foot pump that that uh, raises and lowers the platform. Uh, uh, it's used primarily by siding contractors for residential construction. Okay. Uh, Ladder jack is something that's similar to that. It's it's a bracket that attaches to extension ladders, uh, and then a platform that extends from bracket to bracket. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very inexpensive and, and commonly used uh, uh, scaffold. Uh, uh, again, usually by by siding contractors on residential construction. Okay. Uh, another type is is called adjustable scaffolds. It's used uh, widely by masons uh, due to its high capacity and the ability to continuously be adjusted so the platform can be kept at a comfortable working height. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times it's called a, a crank-up scaffold because there's a, a hand crank on it that, that uh, raises the platform. Uh, but these are limited to one work level. Uh, another type is uh, the modular system-type scaffolds, and they're used widely in industrial maintenance okay. uh, due to their uh, ability to be easily configured to various shapes to avoid either obstructions or building around uh, circular pipes or tanks, mm-hmm. uh, along with their speed of erection compared to tube and coupler. Uh, but you're seeing these on, on construction sites also. Another advantage with frame and brace or, or system scaffolds is that you can add casters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so okay. rather than being a, station, a stationary or supported scaffold, uh, they can now be a mobile scaffold with the ability to be moved around uh, as long as they're on, on level hard surfaces such as a concrete floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, lastly, on supported scaffolds, you're still seeing some some wood pole scaffolds, and also carpenter bracket scaffolds that are made from wood. Uh, 
but uh, there's uh, commercially available metal brackets that are being used quite often uh, in place of the carpenter brackets, particularly on, on bridge construction. Okay. These are all still, still supported mm-hmm. scaffolds. On the suspended side, uh, everyone is probably familiar with window washers. And sure. you'll see window washers hanging, hanging off the side of a building, <laughs> either on a bosun chair, uh, which is kind of scary, uh, but it's, it's a legal type of uh, uh, scaffold platform. Uh, but also you'll see uh, the, the uh, two-point suspended uh, swing stages being used. These are height-adjustable scaffolds, meaning that they travel up and down on a, on a wire rope, typically. Oh, okay. Uh, others include uh, other types of single-point uh, suspended, like work cages. Uh, then you have the Mason's multi-point suspended scaffolds that have a higher capacity. Uh, these would need to be engineered uh, by an engineer uh, to make sure that they're designed properly. Uh, then there's also non-adjustable suspended scaffolds, such as interior hung scaffolds that are used a lot of time in, in warehouses or factories or atriums where you want to keep the mm-hmm. floor open below for other work or maybe right. it's an occupied okay. building and they, they have to keep the, the, the main floor open. Okay. So they'll hang a, a work deck uh, from the ceiling above so the workers can perform their, their work. I see. Okay. Okay. So really a, a lot of different options out there depending on uh, the type of work you're looking at and uh, or the, the yes. different types of projects you might be working on. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Okay. So uh, on that topic, uh, I want to skip ahead in the standard a little bit to talk about Appendix A because it is really a great resource and I think uh, plays a major role in the type of scaffolding selected for a particular project. Now, uh, Appendix A provides guidance on the survey of the job site. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the site survey and how that helps inform the type of scaffolding you need for a particular project. Uh, Right. And, And this is a great tool. It's been in the standard for the past couple of versions. Uh, and we kept it in, in the current uh, 2019 standard. Uh, this survey will help to identify hazards and conditions on the site that need to be addressed and, and may influence the type of scaffold that's best suited for the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what you want to survey when you go to the site, you look at the access to the site, uh, vehicles. Um, I'm going to have to bring my equipment in on a, on a, on a delivery truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I get to the site? Do I need to use smaller trucks? Can I bring in a, a flatbed semi? Where do I unload the uh, materials? Is there a storage site on, on available on site, a staging area? Uh, what about parking for the crew when, when they come to build the scaffold? Uh, I want to look at utilities and services. Uh, are there any temporary buildings or trailers on site? Uh, any excavations that, that, that are being uh, uh, dug at, at the current time may mm-hmm. affect uh, uh, our work. Uh, don't forget to look up and you know, watch the power lines over the <laughs> right. instructions. Uh, sanitary facilities, you know, the, the guys need the restroom facilities, hand washing facilities, lunch break areas. Uh, I want to look at safe work practices. What type of PPE do I need? Obviously hard hats, uh, eye and face protection, gloves, uh, high visibility vests. If we're working near water, do we need life vests? We'll also want to look at uh, fall protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm going to be using a, a personal fall arrest system, are anchors available? Do I need to coordinate with any of the other contractors or trades on site so we don't interfe- interfere with each other? Are there any confined spaces on site? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll also want to look at work practices. Uh, do I have enough space to perform our work? Any special work equipment that I need? Need? Uh, can I get some crane time to bring bring uh, hoist material up? Uh, do I need a forklift, hoist? the types of tools and equipment supplies that I'll need to do the job. Is power available if I'm going to be using power tools uh, mm-hmm. or, or an air compressor? Or do I need to bring that? 
then I want to look at my crew, foremen, the workers. Uh, for scaffolds, I'll need a competent person. I'll need to make sure the workers are trained. How many workers do I need to do the job? I'll need to conduct safety meetings, toolbox talks. What about the accident reporting procedure? I'll need to make sure everybody knows what the process is. Right. Mm-hmm. Are there any Are there any job site specific uh, safety requirements? Uh, where's first aid? Where's the nearest medical treatment or uh, urgent care or emergency room? So there's a lot of things to look at uh, before you even start the job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, another place, uh, that, or another thing that's a good resource uh, uh, in the A10 uh, group of standards is A10-1, uh, uh, the pre-project and uh, pre-task safety and health planning, which may be a good resource for Okay, me. okay, great. Yeah, that's that's a lot of really good points because, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, first aid, what's, you know, the physical environment around there. I think, that, yeah, there, there are so, so many considerations, I mean, beyond just the physical structure itself that you've got to think about. So that, that's that's a really good point that you know, like uh, Appendix A could provide some really good guidance on. Right, and every site can be different. Mm-hmm. Okay, now one of the, the major components of this process is identifying the load rating for different work environments, those being light duty, medium duty, or heavy duty load rating. I wonder if you could talk through that process, what's involved in determining the load rating for a certain area, and what you then do with that information as you move forward? Well, the, the light, medium, and heavy-duty ratings you mentioned uh, refer to uh, uh, load ratings of uh, 25, 50, or 75 pounds per square foot of okay. TSF uh, that the scaffold and its platform must support. Uh, so the first step we need to, uh, to know is what trade or trades will be using the scaffold. Uh, uh, typically, that will be uh, helpful in determining uh, what the load rating is okay. when you design scaffold. Mm-hmm. Uh, a mason, for example, will need a higher load rating, usually a medium-duty or 50 PSF platform, while a painter or, or electrician can get by with a light-duty or 25 PSF. Okay. Masons, masons need to have their block or brick uh, stocked on the scaffold, uh, so the material loads are higher, so they need a, a uh, higher load rating for mm-hmm. their, uh, their, their, uh, their work. Okay. One thing I should mention, though, is that uh, although we, we always refer to a scaffold as being a light, medium, or heavy-duty uh, load rating, those are really just definitions. The scaffold does not need to be designed for one of those three duty ratings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scaffold only requires that we design the scaffold to support four times the intended load. Gotcha, okay. Uh, so the, the, the contractor may need more capacity than a light-duty scaffold, mm-hmm. uh, but also needs to work multiple levels. So a medium-duty scaffold may be too much. And on a typical frame scaffold, the frame scaffold legs are, are typically rated by the manufacturers at around 2,500, maybe 3,000 pounds per leg. Okay. So on a, on a, on a typical 5 by 7 bay scaffold, uh, a medium-duty platform, if it's a continuous run, that 50 pounds per square foot, uh, every work level is going to add 900 pounds of live load to that leg. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so two levels. Yeah. So two levels, you're at 1,800 pounds. Three levels, you're at 2,700 pounds. You may you may uh, be at or even exceeding the capacity of the scaffold. Right. So right. two to three work levels is as much as you're going to get on a medium duty. So if he's not really doing mason work, but he needs more than 25 psf. We can design it for 35, 40 PSF and give them additional work levels okay. by, by uh, uh, using a, a different load rating. Because the standard does mention one more rating uh, that nobody ever seems to talk about. That's special duty. Okay. 
That would apply to a scaffold designed to carry specific types of loads. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, a mobile scaffold, a rolling tower, the capacity is limited by the caster rating. So many times we'll rate the scaffold for a maximum number of workers rather than a uniform load. Another example, uh, we may, may design a scaffold to support very heavy loads that exceed 75 pounds per square foot, or maybe there's some heavy concentrated loads that we need to design for. Mm -hmm. So once we determine the loading requirement, and there's often, as I mentioned, more than one work level on a scaffold, sure, can sure. the, scaffold. the scaffold has to support its own weight and the weight of the frames, braces, platforms, uh, plus uh, uh, four times the intended load or live load to be placed on it. So the taller a scaffold is, the more self-weight uh, there will be, you know, more frames, more braces. That'll leave less capacity for the live load or intended load. So the designer has, has to use uh, uh, care and, and designing to make sure all the loads are accounted for. Right, right. Uh, in addition, as I mentioned, the contractor may want multiple work levels or want every lift of the scaffold plank, uh, even though he's only working one level because he doesn't want to move the plank and guardrails as his work progresses. Right. Mm -hmm. So the scaffold has to be designed to carry all those work, all those uh, bare plank levels, as we call them but only a limited number of the platforms may be designed as work levels at any one time. Okay. The problem is the bare plank levels will add a considerable amount of dead weight to the scaffold. So the designer has to be aware of, of uh, 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 it's not always possible to plank all the levels, but he can optimize the design for the customer to try and meet his needs. Okay. The last thing that the scaffold designer needs to know is what's the manufacturer's allowable load capacity of the equipment that's being used. So this includes the leg capacity, the ledger or bearer capacity, and the platform capacity. Uh, the bay sizes that are used can be adjusted, for example, using smaller bays to get additional capacity if necessary. However, keep in mind that smaller bays will mean uh, more equipment that will need to be used. Right, right, okay. So really an awful lot for the designer to, to take into consideration. I mean, thinking about both materials and personnel, the, the number of personnel, the overall weight of materials, how those are being moved around the scaffold as the project moves forward and just trying to calculate the, the best possible scenario for those circumstances throughout the project. Right. There's a lot he has to keep in mind. And then, as I mentioned, he has options, too, for, for the base sizes. And there's even different widths of scaffold, although five-foot-wide frames are the most common. There are, are narrower width frames, which they, they limit the amount of workspace the, the trades have. But it, it does lower the dead weight because you use fewer planks mm -hmm. to plank a three-foot-wide scaffold, for example, than you would for a five-foot-wide scaffold. Okay. So it does save some weight. Sure, sure. Okay. Now, mo moving through the process, as I noted, uh, the standard applies to the construction, use, and dismantling of scaffolding, and I thought we could spend a little time talking through each of those steps. So starting with the construction, what needs to happen during the construction of scaffolding to ensure that the structure has been assembled correctly in a way that will keep workers safe throughout the duration of a project? Well, it, it begins with the scaffold design. Uh, so the erection crew needs to review the design, make sure they've got all the necessary equipment available, uh, and then plan the work. Uh, by that, I mean they need to pick a starting point uh, for where they're, when they erect the scaffold. Where do we want to start? Uh, they need to assign tasks to the crew, who's going to be the ground person, who are going to be the material handlers passing the equipment up, who are the leading edge erectors. Um, they also need to understand the type of scaffold ties that are going to be used and where and how often uh, they need to be installed. Okay. The standard requires that the scaffolds be erected, moved, dismantled, or altered by experienced and trained employees under the supervision and direction of the competent person. Mm -hmm. 
uh, if there's an engineer drawing, then obviously that plan needs to be followed. Right. Uh, taller, taller scaffolds require ties to an adjacent structure to maintain the stability uh, both during erection and use. Uh, the scaffold must be tied, guyed, or restrained by some means from tipping when the height reaches four times the minimum base dimension. So okay. for a four-foot-wide scaffold, that would be 20 feet. So when the scaffold reaches 20 feet, then it needs to be tied in before you can go higher. Mm-hmm. Now, if the scaffolds are going to be enclosed, even partially, with a tarp or mesh, uh, then more ties are going to be required. It's best when this happens if a qualified person uh, who has expertise uh, both in wind load analysis and uh, enclosing uh, uh, a design of an enclosed scaffold uh, determine what the, the tie spacing is. Okay. That it needs to be. Also, all scaffolds must have an adequate base foundation. Uh, you always want to use a base plate or a screw jack with a base plate. Okay. Uh, and, and unless you're on a concrete slab, use a mud sill to help distribute the load to the ground uh, or to asphalt. The size of the sill will depend on the soil conditions uh, and the imposed leg load. Okay. Once you, can, you have that determined, then you can start building the first lift of scaffold. You level each bay as it's built. And with frame scaffold and system scaffold, once the first lift is complete for all bays uh, and they're level, then you simply start building up with additional lifts. Uh, it's always best to finish each lift with braces, platforms, guardrails, towboards, access, and ties before moving to the next lift. Okay. Once the scaffold's complete, uh, then you want to inspect it, mm-hmm. uh, correct any deficiencies, and then you turn it over to the uh, to the user. Okay, great. A question I just thought of that you uh, touched on a little bit, but taking into account the makeup of your workforce, I wonder if you t- uh, touch on that a little bit, uh, considering you know how many individuals are going to be uh, working on a particular project, the makeup of those individuals, and how that plays into the design process. Sure. Uh, well, it, it depends on, on how the scaffold is going to be erected. On taller scaffolds, you need to get the material as it's, as it's erected, each lift is erected. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you need to get that material up to the leading edge erectors. Uh, there's two ways you can get the material up there. The old-fashioned way was called the daisy chain, where you put one worker on each level of the scaffold. Oh, okay. literally pass the equipment one <laughs> piece at a time up by hand. <laughs> and uh, that, that's, uh, uh, you might think that's a slow process, but, but when they get in their rhythm, they, they can move a lot of equipment. Uh, however, when you get a pretty tall scaffold, you that's a lot of grunt work. you got to get a, a worker on each level to, mm-hmm. to be able right, to handle right. equipment. Nowadays, they, they use uh, mechanized equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are right. some smaller material hoists that attach directly to the scaffold that have relatively low-capacity uh, work cages, about 400 pounds or so, but that's quite a bit of equipment in, in the scaffold business. So they'll have a crew on the ground, a couple guys loading the equipment at the ground, and they'll send the, the car up uh, to the work level uh, where the erectors are, and the erectors will take the equipment and, and install it from there. Okay. So then you just need a couple of guys on the ground to load it and a couple of guys up on the scaffold to, to feed it to the, to the leading edge erectors. Okay. So there are tools like that that, that, uh, that are helpful. Sure. Okay, so now you've, you've constructed the scaffolding. You're ready to start the work on the project. What are the most important things that contractors, safety professionals, and workers need to know and need to think about for everyone to stay safe on the scaffolding while they're doing their day-to-day work? Okay, here training is a big part of scaffold safety. Uh, I mentioned that the erectors need to be trained, but the users also need to be trained. Sure, sure. They need to understand the hazards uh, in the uh, 
specific uh, work area, particularly uh, uh, as they pertain to the scaffold. Mm -hmm. uh, they need to be aware that any alterations to the scaffold are to be done by uh, experienced and trained right. workers mm -hmm. and, uh, and under the supervision of a competent person. Uh, this would include, for example, removing a guardrail or a cross brace to hoist up material. They need to know what the procedure is for that. Uh, if they remove guardrail, obviously they lose their fall protection. So there needs to be an alternate form of fall protection for them while they do that. Users also need to understand the importance of scaffold ties and that they should not be removed. User training should also include how much load can the scaffold support. Is it a light-duty scaffold? Is it a medium-duty? How many levels can be worked at one time? Uh, what's the proper access? You know, can I climb the braces? Can I climb the frames? Mm -hmm. uh, they need to understand all that. Finally, the, the scaffold, you know, I mentioned it needs to be inspected uh, after it's completed, uh, uh, the erection is completed, but it also needs to be inspected prior to each use uh, right. and after any mm -hmm. occurrence that, that could affect the scaffold's structural integrity. And then the standard requires that a notification system be used to inform the, uh, the, the workers of the status and condition of the scaffold. And, and one method, probably the best method, is a tagging system. Uh, the tags would indicate that the scaffold is completed, inspected by a competent person, and ready for use. Or if it's partially completed, still being erected and not ready for use. Or if the scaffold is unsafe and mm -hmm. don't use it. Uh, or they could use toolbox talks. That would be another way right. to, uh, mm -hmm. to keep workers informed about about the uh, status of the scaffold and if there's any changes that have occurred uh, that they need to be aware of. Mm -hmm. That's that's a really good point about the, the toolbox talks. I know that's a tool that a lot of contractors use to educate their, their workforce about the hazards associated with certain type of work. And I wonder, you know, with any kind of construction, if that's something that could almost take place on a daily basis. I mean, when you're working on a construction site, the conditions can change, you know, day to day or even hour to hour. So just keeping everyone apprised of the conditions of the work site and how those changes are impacting worker safety. Right, and that's a very good point, and daily toolbox talks are a very good idea. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one particular safety concern with regard to scaffolding work, as you just touched on, is, is fall protection. With different requirements from OSHA, Cal OSHA, EM385, and A108, how can you know contractors and workers know which rule to follow when it comes to fall protection clearance? You know, when OSHA says 10 feet, Cal OSHA says seven and a half feet, EM385 says six feet, A108 says 10 feet. What, what's the best guideline for knowing what the proper fall protection clearance is? Yeah, it, it can be confusing, uh, and uh, the employer and his competent person, and that's why uh, we have this competent person, they have to know who has jurisdiction of the work site. Uh, is it Fed OSHA? Is it Cal OSHA or some other state plan? Uh, EM385, as you mentioned, which is the uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, they need to know who has jurisdiction and, and uh, what code they have to follow. What okay. Regulation. Uh, and you need to know this before you start the job, and that's maybe another good question for the, for the pre-job uh, survey. But uh, as you said, the regulations will determine when you need fall protection, 10 feet, 7.5 feet, 6 feet, or even some other height. Uh, so this is maybe another good topic for the first toolbox talk. Sure, sure. Uh, but uh, if you're under Fed OSHA, uh, then the height is 10 feet, and it, it's, it's best to provide fall protection for the many different uh, scaffold users uh, and also for the erectors. So you have to, have to keep in mind you have two groups of people. Uh, but the 10 feet applies to both. Mm -hmm. uh, the users uh, will have the advantage that they're coming onto a completed scaffold. So they're going to have a fully planked scaffold platform with the guardrails on all open sides and ends, again, assuming that, that the scaffold's been, been erected properly, but uh, uh, that should go without saying. Uh, for the erectors, it's just a little different story. Somebody has to install those platforms and guardrails, so what do you do for the erectors? 
they won't have that that uh, protection that the users do. Uh, so the standard requires that the employer's competent person uh, determine the feasibility and safety of providing fall protection for the erectors. Okay. Uh, now, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the, the survey should take a look at that, uh, how you're going to provide fall protection, particularly during erection and dismantling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, do, you need to identify any, any potential fall arrest anchors, or you may need to write a site-specific fall plan prior to beginning erection. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, you're beginning to see many uh, erectors tie off to the scaffold, and many scaffold manufacturers have determined which of their components on a scaffold can serve as a fall arrest anchor for the erectors. Uh, so uh, that's a good place to start. Uh, if not, you may need to have a professional engineer analyze your scaffold and help write a procedure for your erectors as part of your, of your fall plan. Okay. Uh, one additional word of caution if you're going to tie off to the scaffold uh, is to make sure you address the possibility of a swing-type fall, uh, where that pendulum effect uh, could cause the scaffold to overturn. Oh, okay, I uh, see what you mean. Okay. Yeah, the scaffold may need to be tied in to the structure at a lower height than the four times the base that's mm-hmm. required by the standard. Okay. Uh, but again, an engineer can help you with this. Sure. You mentioned about the uh, the jurisdiction. What's the best uh, resources so you can ensure that you know who has jurisdiction over a project and you know whose rules you need to be following? Yeah, it, it can be tricky. Um, generally, it's going to be a, a federal OSHA okay. in the U.S. Uh, however, uh, roughly half of the states have their own state plan. Okay. And while that may sound confusing on the surface, many of the state plans have adopted the federal OSHA I see. Okay. Okay. Uh, there are some exceptions, you know, uh, uh, particularly on, on the West Coast. You have California, Oregon, Washington that have their own standards. Uh, and there are some other states also like Michigan. If you're working in that state, you should know who has jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets a little confusing. Uh, for example, if I'm working on a federal project in the state of California, uh, federal OSHA may apply, not Cal OSHA. Okay. Uh, so there, there are some some gray areas like that that, that you have to be aware. Sure, of. sure. Um, but and if you're working on an Army Corps of Engineers site, believe me, you'll you'll know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you'll see them, and, and they'll make it known that they're going to sure. follow the regulations. Right. So. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, you really have to educate yourself. It's like driving a car. You have to know what the speed limit is, right? right? Um, so it, it's the same with, with, the, with construction. Sure, you, sure. You need, to know, you need to know who the cop is and then, you know, what, what law he's going to enforce. Right, right. That's a very good point. Now, moving into the final step. The project is complete. It's time to dismantle the scaffolding, which I'm sure, much like the design and construction phase, is a major undertaking. You touched on this a little bit with fall protection, things like that, but what needs to take place during this step to make sure the scaffolding is dismantled safely as the project concludes and workers stay safe while they're dismantling the scaffolding? Well, yeah, that's a good uh, good question, and uh, you're right. And, and just as you did w- uh, for the construction phase, before you dismantle the scaffold, you want to start with a pre-job survey because uh, uh, when you're on a construction site, they're building something, right? So the job site survey you did at the beginning, the job site is probably completely different now Oh, sure. Uh, at the dismantle sure. phase than it was uh, uh, months or maybe even years uh, prior when you did the pre-job survey. Mm-hmm. So that's where you want to start. Do another site uh, uh, survey. Uh, look at the conditions again, because they're most certainly going to be different uh, than when you're right. at the scaffold. Mm-hmm. So just like you did for the erection when you planned it, 
plan the dismantle phase also. Where are you going to stock the material as it's dismantled? How are you going to lower it to the ground? Uh, is there, uh, if there was a crane on site when you erected it, it, it may be gone. So uh, you've got to keep that in mind. So plan ahead. Uh, that'll help to ensure you've, you've thought through the entire dismantle process mm-hmm. and have sufficient resources to do the job safely and efficiently. Okay. When dismantling scaffold, the first thing you, you want to do is inspect it. Uh, look for any signs of undermining or erosion around the base of the scaffold due to heavy rains. You want to make sure that it has not been altered in any way, uh, such as removal, removal of ties or braces. Components may need to be reinstalled or added uh, prior to starting the dismantle process to make the scaffold safe again. And this should go without saying, but always start at the top and you work your way down. Mm-hmm. Uh, pa- pass the removed parts down. Don't drop them to the ground. <laughs> Uh, avoid stacking the dismantled equipment on the scaffold. Uh, not only can this cause a tripping hazard, but you may overload the scaffold because they tend it's to stack it in point. a particular bay. So uh, it's best you remove a piece of equipment, pass it down to the ground. Another thing to keep in mind is do not remove the ties or braces on the scaffold until the scaffold is dismantled to that level mm-hmm. because you're, you're depending on, on those components to keep the scaffold uh, stable and then blown. Uh, on suspended scaffolds, though, uh, it's a little different scenario. There you want to start at the bottom. Uh, the platform's on the ground. Uh, you want to remove the suspension wire rope from the hoist first, then dismantle the platform. Then you go up to the roof. You remove the suspension rope. Then you can start removing the counterweights. Uh, you want to make doubly sure that there's no load on that rigging component before you start to dismantle it. Okay. Also, leave the tiebacks attached until the rigging device is safely away from the edge of the roof. Now, that would eliminate any any uh, potential fall hazard. Okay, great. Anything else you'd like to add about A108 or scaffolding safety as we uh, as we wrap up? Well, I probably beat this dead horse enough, but I, <laughs> I can't say it enough. But training is really the key. You know, training, training, training. If everyone's been properly trained. Uh, they're familiar with the uh, application of the uh, regulations and standards, and they know their job. The project will go safely and, and well also. So uh, make sure everybody's properly trained and knows their job. Okay, great. That's uh, it's a very good advice. Uh, well, thank you very much again for joining me today, Dale, and sharing your insights with listeners on A108 and scaffolding safety. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you for the opportunity, uh, Scott. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the ASSB Safety Standards and Tech Pubs podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.